0: Good morning, everyone. Today's passage is from John 7, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, It is not this the man whom they seek to kill, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than the man has done? Then Pharisees, then Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come the Jews said to one another where does this man intend to go that we will not find him does he intend to go to the dispersion among the greeks and teach the greeks what does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where i am you cannot come
1: awesome <clears throat> thanks so much Elise good morning everyone good morning. wow good job my name is Carter i am one of the pastors here at citizens church and uh, sometimes it's my pleasure to get to preach to all of you, to open up God's Word, and that's what I get to do today. This isn't my full-time job. My full-time job is uh, working at the Naval Academy, meeting with different students, um, and talking about Jesus. That's right. There you go, Brendan. So, but it is extremely fun often to come up here and preach, and I can say that, but I can and I want to be vulnerable with all of you. This has not been an easy week for me. Katie can testify to that. Uh, She had to bear a lot of the burden with the kids because I probably wrote, and this is an exaggeration, about five sermons on this passage. I just could not figure out what to write about. I could not figure out what I wanted uh, to say here, what I wanted to point out. I've never preached from this large of a passage before, so I was trying to pinpoint what exactly would be applicable, what is needed for our church, what is needed for this. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I struggled so much figuring out what I should preach on is because what, what was here in the passage really uh, convicted my heart. And it took multiple days of prep work this week to actually realize that, that I wasn't just preaching to you guys, not tr- just trying to figure out what was needed for Citizens Church, but God was using this time, this sermon prep, to really bring a lot of conviction and reality of deep sin in my own life. And what I think we see here in this passage is uh, is this theme of, questioning, right? Who is Jesus? This theme of unbelief. Who is Jesus? We see that in the brothers at the beginning of the passage. We see them um, try to figure out who, who is Jesus, who is my literal brother. They don't know who he is, you know. And then we see the, the Jews muttering in the crowd trying to figure it out. And we ultimately see the Pharisees later in the passage trying to figure out who Jesus is. But one thing that we see carried throughout this whole passage is this idea of pride getting in the way of actually being able to see the real Jesus. See, that's what uh, the, the, the question, who is Jesus, is, is in John 7, is kind of a microcosm of the greater question of the whole point of the Gospel of John, right? John says it himself in John chapter 20. This is what he says about the purpose of this book. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what John is saying is the whole book, this whole gospel, the whole reason I wrote this is so that his audience, the Jews back then, the Gentiles back then, and us now may be able to answer the question confidently, I know who Jesus is. But what I realized as I was going through this passage and in John 7 is pride has gotten in the way of so many of these people to actually be able to answer that question correctly. And God was bringing a lot of personal conviction in myself and saying, Carter, you often don't answer that question correctly, or you at least don't live that out, the answer you believe correctly, because of the pride in your own life. And I want to like... I want to define pride, and I'm going to define it in a moment, because I'm not just simply talking about the normal type of pride the way that we usually talk about it in our circles today, but it's a a much deeper-rooted type of pride. So we're going to get to that in a moment, a a larger definition, but I wanted to quickly talk through what our three main points are. What we're going to be looking at today, what I want you guys to see in the text, and what I want you to really apply to your own lives. So the the first point is pride leads to unbelief. Second point is Christ exposes our pride. And the third point is Christ redeems our pride. And in a moment, I'm going to pray, just like we always do before we really launch into the word, but I want to ask you guys to actually pay attention to your own heart. I'm going to leave a couple of, uh, like, 10, 15 seconds before I start to pray. And I want all of you guys to actually ask God through this message and specifically through his word to bring conviction of pride in your own life. Don't let this just be a time where I'm talking through a prayer and you're waiting for me to finish but actually, actually talk to God yourself before I start to pray and ask that he would bring be conviction. Because if we believe that this is the word of God that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, then of course we believe that it can supernaturally transform us. Our desires, our purpose, our wants. And so pray that before I start to pray that there will be conviction in your own life brought from this and that there will be extreme encouragement from God's word and what he's done for us as we go into this. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for you. I am so thankful for you. I know how often in my own life I become very wayward in pursuing what you want me to pursue, pursuing your will, God, pursuing you. And you are so faithful to draw me back to you time and time again. So I pray, Lord, for all of us today as we sit here, as we worship you, as we read your word, Lord. I pray that it will bring great conviction to hardened hearts that you reveal sin that might be so insidious, so uh, underneath many other things in our lives that we're not even aware of it. I pray you reveal that, God, and I pray, God, for all of us in here that either are following you and doing it pridefully, God, or are not following you, rejecting you, and doing that pridefully, Lord. I pray, God, that you will work in this time and that we will just be drawn back to you over and over again. And I pray this on your son, Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get into the whole pride stuff, before we get into the text itself, I want to do a little bit of, uh, of housekeeping as we, we want to figure out what is going on at this point in the story, right? John is a story, we've been talking about this, it's a narrative, and what's supposed to happen as we read narrative is it's supposed to invoke emotion in us, right? We're supposed to be reading it as, in the same way that reason we watch movies, right? To invoke emotion in us as we watch it, to... To gasp with the characters, to be shocked with the characters, to be happy with the characters, the people in the story itself. But to do that, we have to understand what's going on contextually here. So go ahead and read verses one and two with me. John gives us some context. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in J- Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths were at hand. So there's two things happening here. We're gonna start with the feast of booths. This was a Jewish festival, it's on the Jewish calendar. And primarily, this was a time of both reflection and sacrifice. This was a time where the Jews would get together uh, for eight days, and they would build shelters out of trees, essentially. And they would do that to remind themselves of God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness, the Jews' time in the wilderness. And it was uh, supposedly, a lot of people say, it was the most fun festival of the entire Jewish calendar year. They would have a blast. And this time, like I said, was primarily a time of reflection, a time that they were supposed to be focusing back on God and rendering back to him praise and saying, you are such a good God to us for doing this. And this also was a time of sacrifice. Uh, in, in Numbers, when it's describing the Feast of Booths, uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, this, uh, they say there, there's 189 different times that someone is supposed to sacrifice. And it's the most out of any Jewish festival. And so th- this was a time that the Jews were both supposed to be reflecting upon God's faithfulness, and then also giving of themselves freely for favor of God. Giving of themselves freely to be in right standing with God. And that's the first part, and, that, and that's the first backdrop of this whole story, that the Feast of Booths is happening, and that's what the brothers are calling him to go up to. But the second thing is uh, Jesus isn't going up there, at least not right away, right? It says in verse 1 that he is uh, staying in Galilee for fear because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He wasn't going up to the feast. He wasn't going into Judea. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why are the Jews trying to kill him? Well, we've kind of been seeing that play out over the past couple chapters, right? Uh, John chapter 6, we saw that Jesus was um, saying some things that the people didn't like, right? They were all about him when he was the happy healer, you know, when he was going around saying that he was going to give life, a bunch of different stuff. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I'm gonna, you're gonna have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And people are like, what? Can you go back to just slinging loaves of bread around? But he said, you have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And then they were like, this is a hard saying. And then he said, "Uh, you think this is hard? You're gonna wait till you see me ascend back to the Father. He said, now you're claiming to be God? And so Jesus was not concerned with the following he had created. In fact, he specifically did things to weed out the people that were not true followers. And that's the, the backdrop we have going into this passage. That's one of the main reasons the Jews are seeking to kill him. And that also starts to instruct us of one of the reasons why the brothers are dealing with such great unbelief, such great pride. And so now let's, let's talk. We're going to get into that first point. We're going to talk about what I mean by pride. Um... I don't mean pride in the sense, or at least not fully, in the sense where, oh, like I'm, pr- I'm prideful of my basketball skills, or I'm prideful of uh, my sports team, or, oh, I'm prideful, and for me, it's often like I'm prideful in ministry. I want to be the best at ministry. I want people to think I'm good at ministry. Primarily that type of pride that we all deal with, everyone in here deals with, is about pride in relation to other people, other created beings, right? It's, in a lot of ways, a smaller type of pride. But when you hear me talk about pride today as we walk through this text, what I'm actually talking about is pride over God. It's this idea that John has created where there is a collision of wills happening in John chapter 7. Up until now, the Jewish people, they've been following Christ thinking, man, this guy's will, it aligns perfectly with mine. It aligns perfectly. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to bring freedom from the Roman Empire. All these different things, my will aligns with his. And then you get to John chapter 6, and all of a sudden Jesus is saying this wacky stuff, and John wants us to see these, the Jewish people, their will is not aligning with Christ's will. Their will is not aligning with his. And that is the type of pride I want you to think of My will, Carter's will, the Jewish people's will, the brothers' will, the Pharisees' will, the Jews muttering the crowd will, your will uh, over God's will. See, it's a much deeper type of pride than just simply being prideful about something here, like basketball. It's actually at its core, at its core, it's saying, I know better than you, God. I should be exalted over you, God. You should be dependent on me, God. It's this type of pride that says, my will, what I want, what I know, what I believe is far greater than what you know, what you are teaching me, God, what you want of me. So that's when I'm talking about pride, I'm talking about this idea of wills, right? And we see this in, in, John, in John 7, 18, right? This passage, John 17 and 18. And I think this is very much a, a thesis of this, this whole chapter. Go ahead and read with me. It's on the screen behind. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So we have to, we have to figure this out. What, is, what does it mean to seek God's will? What does that mean? What is, what is John saying? What is Jesus saying right here when he's saying the one that seeks my will, the one that seeks God's will? Well, What it means to seek God's will is obedience, right? It's being obedient to his revealed will, the things that he said, this is what I want from you, this is what will give you life, this is what will give you prosperity. It's also surrender. It's this idea of yielding everything to him. I know that in my life, there's certain things that is so hard to yield to God, to say, I don't know exactly what your will is for this specific thing, God, but I'm going to give it to you. Once you have children, if you have children in here, yielding their salvation to the Lord is one of the greatest forms of surrender you ever do. It's saying, I know, I know, God, that this is all you. I I can do certain things. I can follow what you want me to do. I can be obedient. I can disciple my children. But I know ultimately it's your will that will bring about their salvation. And that is one of the greatest forms of surrender that God's called me to, to do to his will already. But there's other ways that you do it, right? And then, of course, a big one, submitting to God's will, is seeking his glory above our own, right? That's what Jesus says right there. Being more concerned with God's exaltation, God becoming bigger than us becoming bigger, than Carter becoming bigger. Being more concerned when I'm meeting with different midshipmen that they fall in love with God, that they worship God, than they walk away and say, wow, Carter's such a cool guy. That's submitting to God's will. This is the thing that it's not. This is submitting to your own will. This is being concerned with your own will. It's self-exaltation. It's self-satisfaction, it's self-dependence, it's self-improvement, it's self-authority. It's this idea of ultimately, if I want to live, if I want to truly live, then I'm going to be the one that does it. I need to depend on myself. I need to find satisfaction in myself. I need to improve myself. I need to be my ultimate authority. And all of that, all of that at its core is being prideful over God saying, I know better than you, God. My will is greater than yours, God. I have a friend, just to illustrate this, I've I've known him for about five years now, and uh, pretty much our whole relationship, we're not like super close, is just meeting meeting together probably like two times a year at max, maybe once a year to talk about God. That's what we do. And it's a cool friendship, and he probably believes in God to a certain extent. At least he believes parts of the Bible. He believes that Jesus probably was a real person, and something that asks me all the time, all the time is, Carter, do you think I'm a Christian? Like, do you think I'm a Christian? And it's such a, it's a tough thing to answer because the answer is no. And the way I can know that he's not a Christian, and I explain this to him too, is um, he doesn't want God's morality. There's many things in his life that he doesn't want to give up. And for him, it's not an intellectual problem of following Christ. It's not an intellectual problem at all. It's simply that for him, he thinks that Christ, his God, should conform to his own morality. He can't conceive of a God that would ask him to give something up. And so he thinks in that moment, that's the type of pride I'm talking about. He's saying God actually should be more concerned with my will than I should be with his will. So it's not an intellectual problem why my friend doesn't believe in God. It's a pride problem at its core. And that's what we're going to see throughout the text. So we see this play out with the brothers, right? Go ahead and read with me behind me verses 3 through 5. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that the disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So we talked about this. As we read through gospel narrative, we should be shocked. And this is an extremely shocking thing to read. This isn't Jesus talking to disciples and calling them brothers. He's not just seeing some passerby saying, what's up, bro? These are his half-brothers. These are the same brothers that shared the womb with Mary. These are the ones that he grew up with. They probably shared a room with him. And what does it say in verse 5? That these brothers, Jesus' very own brothers, did not know him. They did not believe in him. And it's not for a sake of, oh, maybe they just haven't heard what he's about. For sure they've heard what he's about, the greater population in Galilee at this point has heard what he is about. This is what, and this is Jesus's words. This isn't even just uh, what other people have said about him. This is what Jesus has said about himself. He has said that he's the son of man. That's John chapter 1, 3, and 5. He said that he's the son of God. That is John chapter 2 and 3. He said that he is the Messiah that they call Christ. That's John chapter 4. He has equated himself with God, that's John chapter 5. He has said he's the giver of life, that's John chapter 5. He said that he is the I am. He's equated himself again with God, it is I, in John 6. And he's also said that he is the bread of life. So it's not for a sake of lack of knowledge that the brothers don't believe in Christ. There's something much more insidious and pervasive and rooted that is causing them to not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But what is it? There's different, different people have different opinions of why the brothers didn't believe. Uh, but what I think, what we see in the text is that Jesus had become increasingly inconvenient for the brothers. Right? Uh, there's, uh, there's this, a lot of people believe, a lot of scholars and theologians believe that at this point in the story, in, in Jesus' life, and the brothers' li- lives, that, uh, that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, has died. He's not mentioned in the gospel narratives at, anymore up to this point. Uh, after Jesus goes to Jerusalem to teach in the temple. He's never mentioned again alongside Mary or alongside the brothers. So a lot of people believe he's dead. And what that would mean is that all the brothers and Mary would be looking at Jesus, the eldest brother, to take care of their family. There's actually, a lot of people think this is what is happening in Matthew 12. It's on the screen behind me. And while he was still speaking, talking about Jesus to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, "Here are my brothers and my mother. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother." So again, we can't be for sure why the brothers don't believe in Christ. Don't believe in Jesus as the Christ, don't believe in Jesus as God. but one of the reasons that it seems clear here to me is that Jesus has been inconvenient for them, that Jesus has probably embarrassed them. And that Jesus is not fitting into the mold that they expect him to fit into. Guys, is this same for a lot of us? It's hard to answer that question right, who is Jesus, when he becomes increasingly inconvenient for us. And that inconvenience of Jesus, whether it looks like, uh, you know, boldly talking about him in your workplace. Or talking to your family or friends with him. Whatever it is, that inconvenience of Jesus, it's flowing from this idea within you, this, this pride that is saying, actually, I know that I'm supposed to talk about Jesus. I know I'm supposed to believe in Jesus. I know, I know no matter what, even if it feels inconvenient at the time, that this is for my good, that's the will of God, but instead I'm clinging to my own will. And it, and it produces an unbelief in Jesus even in us. Even as believers, it produces an unbelief in Jesus. But it's not just the brothers, it's also the crowds, right? Look at verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14. This is what they say. And there was much muttering about him among the people. That's important, muttering. While some said he's a good man, others said no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So there's so many examples of unbelief in here. We're not going to touch on each one. But I want you guys to pay attention to the, the muttering crowd, right? This idea that um, Jesus has done all these things. He said he's the giver of life. He's, he's revealed more and more of who he actually is to the crowd. And what is happening as they're waiting to see if Jesus, Jesus is going to come up to the feast, uh, instead of openly talking about him, they're muttering amongst themselves. Do you know if Jesus is coming? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. By the way, who do you think he is? Shh, shh. I don't know, man. He seems like a good guy. And at first, that, that idea of like good person, that seems to me, that seems at first glance like, oh, look, we got some followers here. We got some people that believe he's good. But actually, actually, they're aiming far too low. This is just another example, another example of pride. And guys, this one, this particular type of unbelief, the muttering crowd that's not going to talk openly about Jesus for sake of persecution, for fear of what will happen, this one resonates most with me. And probably a lot with you guys. See, I, one of the convictions God has brought to me as I was going through this text this week was that I am so, so fearful of discomfort. I'm so fearful of persecution. I'm so fearful from suffering. And, and just like we saw in John chapter 6, and we've, we've seen in the narrative so far, of the story of Jesus, that people are slowly falling away as falling him gets harder. In a lot of ways, that's where my pride and my unbelief comes from too. Because when Christ asks me to go into depths of water that I don't feel comfortable going into, it's easier to just not believe in him. It's easier to say, "I, I don't actually have to go there, God. And for a lot of us, a lot of us that have experienced suffering, that is a huge deterrent on actually giving yourself to the will of God. Because what's happening when we give ourselves to the will of God? We're saying with complete abandonment, I'm all yours. Whatever you have for me, wherever you call me, wherever you're going, I'm going also. And to call Jesus just a good man gives us a way out. If he's a good man, we can pick and choose what to believe about him. We can pick and choose when to follow him. We can pick and choose when we have to boldly talk about him. But if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is Yahweh, then we have to follow him wherever he goes. And as the Jewish crowds are seeing here, Jesus is dangerous. He's not a safe God. It's actually probably realistic that if they were to say maybe that they did believe in him completely, that they could have received persecution from the Jews. And so for them, their belief, their unbelief rather, is flowing from this desire to get away from suffering, from discomfort. And for me, that one resonated. And at its core, again, it comes down to this idea of I believe my will. (laughs) I believe my own will is greater than God's will. And the last one we're going to look at real quick from this first point is the Pharisees, right? And this one, Citizens Church, this is us for the most part, right? This is me. This is a lot of us in here. This is the different type of pride that flows from us. Look at verses uh, 19 and 20. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So what's happening here? Jesus is is drawing out from, he's revealing from the Pharisees you're actually not all that you think you are. And this is a painful thing to happen too. What's happening here is the Pharisees have built their lives around being righteous people, and Jesus is saying in verse 19, you, you have not even kept the law of Moses. You actually are a sinful people. And their reaction to it is often my reaction and a lot of ours' reaction if we are seeking self-exaltation, if we're seeking self-righteousness. It's, how dare you? And maybe we don't say that to God literally, but a good test of, do I deal with self-righteousness? Is what is your first inclination when someone calls out sin in your life? Is it to be, uh, is it concern? Is it, man, maybe you're right. Maybe I am sinning against the perfect holy God. For me, often it's defense, right? It's like, no, you're wrong because of this, this, and this. And who knows, they might be wrong, but what's happening reveals in your heart what, what you actually believe. Because the reality and what Christ is doing here is saying that no one, no one has lived up to the law of Moses. All of you have fallen short. And if that is true, then you're in need of something greater. And that, as a self-righteous person, is so hard to hear. Because at its core, my self-righteousness is flowing from pride. It's flowing from this idea of I am greater than even you, God. And that's what's happening here with these Pharisees. I can be good in of myself. I am self-dependent. I am by myself righteous. And so this one, I say, this one is very important for us as a church to get. Because we might get, get good with the external sins, right? yeah, I'm obedient to God, I care about God's will, but ultimately we're bad with what happens in verse 18 when, when Christ says, those who seek after their own glory. Because we trick ourselves as a church often in saying, if I do this right and this right, if I follow this, if I don't sin here and I don't sin here, then ultimately I'm good. But in reality, often we're doing it for our own glory, not for God's glory. And so ask yourself, truly ask yourself, when I seek to be righteous, when I seek to, uh, to not do this sin, to not do this sin, to go to church, to read my Bible, to pray, to talk to people about God, am I doing it for my own exaltation or for God's exaltation? And it's an important question to ask, and a lot of us, if we ask it truthfully, we we'll need to repent of our own self-exaltation. And all of these, guys, we're moving out from the first point, all of these different ways that we see unbelief in this passage, the brothers, the Jews, the Pharisees, all of these different ways we see unbelief, it flows from a rejection of Jesus of who he is, who he has claimed to be, and it's flowing from a deep-rooted pride like we talked about. But praise God that he does not leave us to our own devices. And this is what we see in verse 6 and 7. Read along with me. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come your time is al- always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testified that its works are evil. So this is Jesus talking to his brothers and he's saying, uh, your time has not yet come. That's a whole nother sermon. We can talk about that later. But he's, he, what he's getting at is he's saying, uh, the world is not going to hate you. And why does he say that? What does he mean by saying the world is not going to hate you? Well, we have to first figure out what he means by the world. Uh, simply said, the world is unregenerate people people that have not professed and lived out in their lives that Jesus is Lord. That is the world. And Jesus is saying to the brothers, the world's not going to hate you. You don't have to worry about that. But why? Why would the world not hate them? Well, primarily is they operate within the world. They operate in the same way the world operates. So, of course, the world will not hate them. But then he says, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, And this is John developing more of what he's already talked about in his, this gospel. Read with me in John 3.18. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clear, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What's happening here is that Christ, by the nature of who he is and the purpose of why he has come, naturally exposes the world for being dark. He is the light. He is bringing about an exposure to each one of us, saying, at your core, you're actually about yourself. At your core, you're actually a prideful person. At your core, you believe that your own will is greater than God's will. And this is a painful process. But it's great that God does it. Because has anybody else ever boasted in themselves and then realized I'm actually all not that good about that thing? I, uh, I played cornerback in football in high school for one year. And then when we got to college, we were doing intramurals. And I used to tell people, oh, yeah, I played corner in college. I mean, in, in high school. Yeah, I'm pretty good at it. I can cover wide receivers. And we made it all the way to the championship game of the intramural season and we're going to win, and I get burned by this guy that is far too good for me to be covering him. And they win the game. Well, actually, no, he scored, and then we scored with like 10 seconds left, and then I got burned again for another touchdown. And because I had been boasting about my skills as a corner, that hurt even more because I was exposed in that moment. I was exposed at not actually being good, not actually being to the standard, to the level that I thought I was. And the same thing, and it's, it's a terrible feeling, it's an embarrassing feeling when we think, I am actually, I got it all together, I'm good. I've got God figured out, i got my family figured out, I've got my work figured out, I'm good in all these different areas, and then all of a sudden we get exposed. Because we realize we've placed our, our value, our hope in our own will rather than in God's will. And it's a painful process, but it's such a good thing. Because if we were to live our lives depending fully on our own will, one day we're going to get to the end of it and we're going to be grossly disappointed in what it's offered us. This is what C.S. Lewis says about God, engaging God and how he reveals our darkness. He says this, in God, you come up against something which in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. This is so vitally important to get, guys. It's so vitally important to care so deeply about your own pride so that you can actually see God. And what, what Lewis is saying here, and what John also is saying, and what Jesus is saying in verses seven, six and seven, he's saying, as you draw near to me, what's going to happen, as you really come close to me, as you seek to answer that question, who am I, as you come close, I'm going to reveal all of the brokenness, all the inefficiency in your life, all of the weaknesses in who you are. That's what's going to happen. And, and we might sit here and be like, man, this is, that's terrible. <laughs> Why would I want to go near a God that does that? But it actually is not terrible. It's actually a huge grace of God to reveal how insufficient we are. Because when we realize I'm in the muck, I'm in the dirt, I am nothing in of myself, my will does not serve my best purposes, I thought I was something and I'm actually nothing. When we get to that that point, that's exactly who Jesus came for. When you realize that, when you realize I'm nothing in of myself, that is exactly who Jesus came for. He came for you then. But if you're so prideful, if we're so, so big-headed that we cannot see our own need for Christ, then we're going to miss him, just like the unbelief in this passage. Christ, by the very nature of who he is, exposes the works of evil at work within us, But if you draw near, here's the good news, if you draw near to him, it's not just that he exposes it. It's not like he's just standing above you going, yeah, you're nothing, good luck with that, and walks away. Christ didn't come just to expose your weakness, your inefficiencies. He's come to die for it. And greater than that, he's even come to redeem the pride in which you were wrongfully boasting in. This is the third point. Christ redeems our pride. Go ahead and read with me verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what's happening here? What's happening here? Jesus is is saying, stop trying to live on your own. The one that thirsts, the one that, that needs, come to me. And what will I do? I will give you eternal life. You're not going to make it on your own. You're not going to do it. That's what Jesus is saying. And we're not. there's so much in this part. Joey's actually going to preach on this next week. But it's important to see it because this is, this is vital, guys. If you want to truly live in this life, if you want to have true good life in this life and for the rest of eternity, it's not going to be through self-exaltation. You're not going to be big enough. You're not going to garner enough glory for yourself to be something. You're not. It's not going to give you true life. It's not going to be through self-dependence. It's not going to be through self-improvement. It's not going to be through self-importance. It's through self-denial. It's coming to the end of yourself and realizing I am nothing in of myself. My best works, God, are but dirty rags before you. I deny myself everything that I thought was going to give me life in this world, and I'm coming to you, realizing that you're the one that has eternal life. This is what picking up your cross daily looks like. It's saying, man, whatever your will, God, is for me, that's, that's my first instinct. That's my, first, that's my heart's cry is to do your will, to obey what you revealed to me and to yield to what I don't even know you're asking of me. And I said this redeems our pride. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Think about that for a second. The people of unbelief are boasting in themselves. We, when we don't believe in God, often boast in of ourselves. But the people that do believe, what's their first thing they they do? They boast in Christ. Is someone is someone else gonna do more than he? Look at how amazing he is. That's what true belief looks like. It's saying, yeah, I am nothing. Just like we talked about in 2 2 Corinthians 4 earlier when we all read that, it's saying, I'm but a jar of clay. I'm extremely fragile. I'm going to be broken. I'm probably not even going to contain this well. You're going to see me and you're going to think that person's weak, that person's insufficient, that person's prideful, that person's broken. Yet the treasure within me, the thing I cling to, the good news of God, the spirit within, within me, Jesus Christ himself, that is my treasure. And the treasure within the jar of clay makes the jar of clay worthy. And that's what's happening here. They're saying, will, will the Christ do more? It reroutes our pride. It's not that you can't be boastful people. We should be boastful people. We should boast in the thing that deserves our boasting, though. I, uh, and I don't want, this is an important caveat, I don't want you to think, because this happens often. I have this conversation with, with mids a lot or people I'm meeting with talk about God, and it's just like, well, I guess, I guess if I'm going to do the will of God, then the rest of my life is going to be yet just denying myself pleasure, denying myself good things of this world so that I can do the will of God. But the reality is, all of those things, all the things that this world has to offer are insufficient, and ultimately, even in this life, will bring less joy than truly doing the will of God. We, uh, this is kind of embarrassing. We don't watch it anymore. It's kind of a crazy show, but Katie and I, early in marriage, watched Black Mirror, and uh, it's a, it's a well-done show, but it's really heavy. It's a heavy, it's a dark show, and uh, in one of the episodes, it's um, futuristic, and they've developed a technology, essentially, that when you die, you can, like, download yourself into what they pretty much are calling paradise, And what you see in this story is like what paradise was, was people were all their favorite things of this world, partying, drinking, sex, everything of this world, they make their paradise and they can live for eternity in this downloaded program, essentially. And what you see is slowly over time, uh, the things of this world were not actually that good for all of eternity. They were woefully insignificant. They were woefully, they fell short so greatly. And the people just started becoming more and more debased. Like, how can we get more out of this? It's just, it's not that good. It's not that good for all of eternity. After this amount of years, I need to do something else. After this amount of years, I need to do something else. And what I thought was so interesting as we watched this episode is to say, man, the things that we take so much pleasure in, that we think is our ultimate pleasure in this world, if we have that for all of eternity, it's going to leave us wanting but if we have an eternal God for all of eternity, if that's our ultimate prize, if that's what we ultimately boast in, then for all of eternity, the rest of eternity, we will never be dissatisfied. We will always be satisfied because God is that pure, that God is that good. Worshiping him is that fulfilling. And so even if in this life we are nothing, Joey's been saying it a lot, right? In this life, this is what we know, that I We'll die, and I will be forgotten. Each one of us will die, and we'll be forgotten. And for that reason, we have nothing to boast in. But this is something to boast in, and this is what I'll close with. I thought it was so amazing. My uh, grandmother is really into, like, ge- genealogies and just old stuff. And uh, she found this letter, and she sent it me. She's not a Christian, but she sent it to me because it's a, an old letter from a missionary in 1957. And I remember reading, it and I was just shocked, and I thought, this is a good way to end the sermon. This is what he says. This seminary in India, 1957, he's discussed already in the letter about different things that are happening. He's just catching up his supporters. And this is what he says. It is late before we finally stretch out on the Takai and the Ruai. I'm probably messing up words here. Or in the Bilik, if you don't care to sleep with dogs running around, for, around you. For we walk way into the night about questions, we talk way into the night about questions of Christian belief and practices. Troubles in the local longhouse and neighboring longhouses. This new idea we are about to start of giving an offering, the old taboo and the freedom they now enjoy through Christ Jesus. The old religion of the Ibans puts much stock in dreams. One husband called me into his room to pray with his wife, whose dead grandmother has been visiting her in her dreams and telling her that if she doesn't return home to the house of her parents, she will die. This was enough to scare the poor woman to her sick bed and the only psychosomatic medicine I knew of was prayer. So we prayed, and we prayed, that her faith might be strong enough to rid her of any fears she may have or dream, of, her, of her dreams. On the other hand, the simple faith and prayer and the power of Jesus himself, these people have especially during times of sickness and trouble, is really overwhelming and inspiring. I have never prayed so much in my life as during the time that the Asian flu hit here. Yet there are times of discouragement, for the growth into the new faith of the Pamali and the tapoos of the past is slow and difficult. At first, they experience a freedom upon being released from burdens imposed by their gods of animism, but the growth towards acceptance of Christian responsibility is slow. We can be assured, though, that this movement of the Holy Spirit is certain and everlasting. He goes on to close up the letter. I don't know. You guys, I don't know who this was. I doubt any of us know it because his signature is smeared at the bottom. This guy has no glory in this life. No glory at all. He gave his entire life. He was completely forgotten by his family, by his people probably. He made no significant amount of money most likely, and he gave his entire life to the Indian people. But I can guarantee you one thing that is happening is that if he lived out this life In obedience to God's will, in the same way that we're called to, He will get to heaven one day and He will hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. And in the same way that we all long deeply for the approval of our earthly fathers to say, Well done, how much more should we long for the approval of our heavenly, perfect, holy Father that has never failed us and that will never fail us to say, Well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our lives? So, practically, How do we do this? How do we seek after God's will above our own? Well, the first thing that I think we have to do is we have to really pay attention to verse 18, what it says, what Christ says about seeking his glory above our own. So we have to be obedient even when we hate it, right? In a lot of ways, uh, public speaking scares me. Public speaking is tough for me. But I I know that I must be obedient in a lot of ways, and this is one way I must be obedient. Another way is to give up the difficult things to give up that you know you have to. A lot of us cling to different sins in our lives because we think, I will die if I don't have this. This comfort I have, I will die if I don't have it. Yet God is calling you to a greater obedience. And so the first step is to simply say, all right, I'm going to obey no matter what, even if I hate it. Second way is to pray to care about that obedience. And the third way is to read his word as if it has the power to transform you not just reading it to read it, not just saying this is a good book to read, oh, there's some morality in here, but reading his word with, the, with believing that this word is supernatural. It can really change my desires, my thoughts. It can change who I very much am. Let's pray. Dear God, I am so thankful for you, and I'm so thankful that you consistently prove yourself worthy to follow So I pray now, God, that as we go into the rest of this day, as we go into the rest of the week, that we will be consumed with you more than consumed with ourselves. I pray that you are uh, loud in our hearts, that our wills, if we choose them over your will, consistently fall short, so that we are just left saying, what is better? And then that also, Lord, that when we do seek your will, when we do obey, when we do submit and yield to you, God, that we will reap the benefits of that, the joy of following you, the intimacy that is on the other end of obeying you, Lord, that you will connect our our heads' decisions to follow you with our hearts, joys, and wants. And God, I pray for this church, God, and for all of us in here, God, believers and unbelievers, skeptics and passionate followers of you, that you will conform us even more now, Lord, into more of your image. I pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen.